you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is coming out later this year to the masses. I'm Liz Manishaw. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer and director Riley Stearns on the show to talk about his latest feature, Duel, starring Karen Gillan, a.k.a. Amy Pond. Riley talks about how he wrote the movie on spec, how he got the film funded, and also how his career has grown gangbusters. That's not an expression. Okay, we'll just keep going. Growing like gangbusters. There you go. (laughs) After that, we talk about an article from IndieWire about method acting and how it shouldn't be used as an excuse for bad behavior. And then we read a listener email. But before that, Ulrich, how's your week going? It's pretty great. You know, I found out that the alternate one best sci-fi feature at the Phoenix Film Festival, which was incredible. And it was so funny because, you know, they had a, a little like, oh, you know, Phoenix Film Festival is, is live on Instagram. And I was like, oh, I wonder if it's the awards show. So I just pop on. And then I just saw that, like, you know, they announced best horror feature. And I was like, oh, cool. And it, it was for Crabs, which is a movie that was shot in uh, Northern California in Fort Bragg. And friends of mine and, and people who would worked on my movies that worked on that movie. So I've been hearing about this movie forever. It was shot like in 2014. And it finally came out because it has like a ton of visual effects. So they won best horror feature. I was like, oh, yay, Crabs. And then sci-fi short comes and then sci-fi feature. And then I get to hear, you know, the announcement that we want best sci-fi feature. So it was really cool to like see it, you know, through my little phone and be on the couch and just be like, yay. So they didn't like give you a heads up. They didn't go like, hey, you may want to check this out today. No, nothing. And it was funny (laughs) because I don't know. Is that a thing that like all festivals normally do? Because I've been at festivals where I've won stuff and they did not say shit to me. And then I've also been at festivals where they're like, so you're coming to the award show there, guy? Are you going to be there? And I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. Oh, you should definitely come if you can. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, well, am I winning something or what the hell's going on here? And then, of course, I won that one and it was like, oh, wow, amazing. But yeah, my, my producer, Jeff, he was kind of annoyed because he was in Phoenix visiting friends. And so he went to the screening. But then he's like, ah, I don't feel like going to the to the gala award ceremony thing. So he skipped it. And then he found out we won. He was like, they should have told me I would have been there. I would have like, been able to receive the award. But, you know, you. I don't know. So you think that's like the proper yeah. etiquette is to just tell. Oh, interesting. I like being surprised. No. I like the. Whoa, it's fun. I no? lean on no that. Surprise? I lean on that because I think I didn't know about that. And I remember going to Woodstock at the premiere of Bread and Butter and being like really nervous. And had I known that it was like actual majority protocol to get give someone the heads up in advance, I would have actually enjoyed myself. Like I did not. Mm. And it was stupid because I just felt bummed out the whole time. But I wanted to give a shout out to Shelly Ulrich, who she doesn't work for, but she volunteers at the Phoenix Film Festival. And she let me know that you won. Oh, I just thought that was really, really? cool. Thanks to Shelly. Hey, Shelly. <laughs> they What's didn't. They, so <laughs> it's so funny. So like uh, Josh Kesselman, he's friends with Nathan Blackwell. So I, he, he AD'd Nathan's feature. So this is like, you know, I met Josh. Nathan wasn't there on that day because it was his birthday. But Josh gave me all the, the Nathan Blackwell, you know, details. And he's also a listener of the show. So thank you, Josh. He instant messaged me or, you know, DM me on, on Facebook was like, hey, just in case you didn't see this, 
you know, and like linked to like the alternate winning, you know, sci- best sci-fi feature. Yeah. So like, yeah, I, and then I, you know, I was kind of waiting to like see like when it was going to be announced and then they put it on their website like that day. But anyways, it's I don't just, know. It's funny. It's very interesting. Our love for the Phoenix, Phoenix contingency knows no bounds. I think every episode we're yeah. just going to talk about another name from Phoenix that we want to shout out because we love them. It was a fun film festival. I really had a great time. You know, can't say nicer things about the Phoenix Film Festival. But other things are going on with me. Yeah, I'm just waiting to hear back about these ideas that I sent off last week. I got a little bit of a something like that they did. They were read. I got that much. So they were that's like more than I get sometimes. I'm trying to write. I can't write. I'm working more on the this indie f- feature I, t- I talked about last week. I'm kind of getting roped in to help out remotely in other ways. So it's taking up more of my time, which is fun. But, you know, it's just like I haven't really been as creative this last week as I would have liked to be, especially like I feel like coming up with those ideas and like working on those pitches, it like really distracted me from the movie I was writing. And like now I go back to the writing the other movie and I'm like, it's like hard to like filter out the other ideas I had for the other potential movies. And it's just like, okay, like you gotta pull those ideas out of my head and then I can like just focus back on what I was writing. So I, I mean, I put in like a couple, a little bit of time, but I really need to double down on script writing this week and focus back in on it. You will. But yeah, how are, how are you doing, Liz? How are things on your end? Well, I spent a lot of time with family this past week. And my sister, who only listens to this opening segment of the show, is what I also <laughs> found out. She's one of our three listeners, and she only listens to these first five minutes. So I wanted to shout out Sarah King. Hello. Well, Sarah Irving. But she gave me, some, I don't know if it's advice or she kind of put a lot of questions in the air for me. And a lot of them I'm hoping we're talking about later with regard to like ego and why we make decisions about what we do. But she brought up a lot about social media and oversharing and reputations. And but the point is, I deleted Twitter from my phone and Facebook from my phone, which I never, ever thought I would ever do in my life. <laughs> What? So I can <laughs> still do that? I can still access it, you know, on the interwebs, but I'm not like usually every morning I wake up, I check my email, I check Facebook, I check Twitter, I check Instagram. It is like my morning ritual. I stopped doing that. And the reason I stopped doing it is because my sister's like, why? What do you get out of that? What, what, what is the benefit of that? And it's like, I have my newsletter. So if I want to keep in touch with people in a mass way, I can do that. I get sensitive and weird about comparing myself to other people's progress. And I think social media is really digging into that lately. And then, you know, I can go t- once a day to Twitter for the show to promote our show. So why am I really on these platforms if I have nothing really to say? So I took them off. But you but you stay a lot. You say a lot on Twitter. You're always saying things on Twitter. But what's the real know? benefit? What has it contributing? To, like, what, what's the net positive of that? I don't know. I mean, I feel like... Oh, here, here's here's what I'm going to say. Okay. I'm going to say some things. So, like, I feel like like there's a Twitter community yes. that you're clearly a part of. Right. And there's a couple of filmmaking friends of mine who I I also, like, experience through Twitter. Like, Maria Maia is one of them, mm-hmm. who I also work with, and, and you. And I feel like whenever I read one of your tweets, I read one of her tweets, or someone else's tweets, I'm always seeing the same names popping up yes. on the replies. And it's like this, like, this clear community of voices that are interacting and speaking to each other. And you're a big part of that. You're a big part of this indie filmmaking Twitter, if I may be so bold. So I don't know. My question to you is like, do you feel that community and do you enjoy being a part of that community? Or is that not what you're getting out of your Twitter experience? I do. I think it's not erasing it from my life. I think it's erasing it 
as an automatic response as a time filler. It's like, I don't want to just go there and scroll and read timelines when I could go and read Nor Ephron's Heartburn, which is what I'm reading right now. And I got a lot more joy from reading Nor Ephron than I do from reading a Twitter timeline. But and thank you for the compliment. But I also want to acknowledge that Jessica Ellis, a lot of people who are on Twitter, you know, we interviewed her probably a year or two ago. And she's oh, yeah. like, she's 60,000 followers on Twitter. She wrote. She's, this, she's one of these people that I see, too. So yes. she's part of this, this world. So she wrote like a Medium article a few days ago that was like, I'm leaving Twitter and don't make fun of me if I come back. But here's why I'm leaving Twitter. I don't know who I am anymore. Like it is taking over my life. And it's this really beautiful personal thing about how she's like taking a step away because it has become too central a focus for her. And I think it has. Like if you have 60,000 followers, you're swept up into this idea of like, what can I say? What should I say? How often should I make jokes? How often should I be political? Like I think you get in your head about that. And she acknowledges that she's sacrificing an audience now as a filmmaker by not upkeeping that number of followers. Like that's power. But then also it's like, what could you be doing with your time instead of that? Probably a lot of other things. And so I'm trying to clear out. It's like, you know, I talked about a few months ago that I cleared out old clothes and I'm trying to get rid of things that I don't use. I'm trying to like save some space in my brain to not automatically default to social media and just use it when I Mm. actually have something to say or want to research something or want to talk to someone specifically. So that's what's going on Mm. right now. Interesting. I'm very curious to follow this and like see how often you pop up on my timeline now because you are like one of the people who pop up the most. Like you always yeah. have interesting things that you say. You. Yeah. So now, now that you have less interesting things to say, <laughs> or I don't know, it'll be interesting to see. Well, I'm deleting I, I don't know. tweets I, too. Just so you know, I'm deleting old tweets too. You're deleting old tweets. Huh? Yeah. I'm trying to like re- to get rid of. Yeah. I'm archiving and deleting. So wh- why? Just because like, are you deleting it because you don't want like you change your mind on the p- opinion or? Is it just clearly because you just don't want to have as much of you out on Twitter as there was before? I think I just, and I feel like I cut you off, so I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to route us back to the Twitter conversation. It's like, uh, I don't need to, even if the space is nominal and it's digital and it's infinite, I don't need to talk about my lunch. I don't need to talk about, like, that doesn't need to exist. (laughs) So I'm deleting things that are unimportant from my Twitter timeline. And I'm just saying, like, I'm only going to say things when there's a reason to do it or else it's kind of feeding this ego. Like, oh, I have a thought I'm going to put on the internet and then I'm going to see how people respond to it. It's like this weird cycle of approval. And it's like, I don't always need to feed that monster. So I'm trying to not feed Mm. the monster. But like, I guess the point, I always thought the point of Twitter was like the more that you feed the monster, like the the more you grow, right? Like that's like, and if you're trying to like, you know, become a presence on Twitter, which is like, I think kind of one of the points of Twitter, then you, it's like the more you feed it, even if it's like, I ate a banana for lunch. Isn't that weird? (laughs) I didn't eat a sandwich. I ate a banana. (laughs) Crazy, right guys? Like, you know, that, that like. That that feeds the beast, and then like, there's some people who like to to have that kind of connection with people. Yes. But like you know, like I could never talk about the lunch I make because I like I don't even like I don't feel like I have the time or the desire to do so. You know, I think. Anyway, yeah, yeah, go on. I, we don't need to talk anymore. Let's go. Moving on. Okay, let's go. Yeah, but anyways, very <laughs> fascinating. I'm gonna let's let's follow up with Liz in a month. I want to see where where she is. Oh jeez, <laughs> oh, <laughs> the look on Liz's face. <laughs> don't follow up. With I me. wish people could see that. It was. So funny. Oh, man. 
So forget about following up with me, but don't forget to follow us and support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. This is nuts. It really has been a crazy two weeks on Patreon. We are really feeling the love and we want to wish a very happy Patreon patronage birthday to Courtney Sposato, who is a wonderful, beautiful last name. Thank you for gener- the generous support. Everyone should check out her short, which she co-directed with her husband, and it's called Hey, It's Me, which I know Ulrich watched. I haven't watched it yet, Courtney. I'm so sorry yeah. to hate me. It was very, very fun, Courtney. And I, t- I told her that I liked it so much. I feel like, you know, she didn't ask us to talk about it on the show, but I thought I liked yeah. it so much. It's so cool that people should check out this short film. Like one location, like a couple actors, really fun sci-fi. If you're a sci-fi fan, you're going to enjoy the 10 minutes you spend watching the short. So check it out. And we also want to give a happy Patreon patron birthday to our second Patreon patron of this past week. His name, you have heard it before. It is Nathan Blackwell. Thank you for the support, Nathan. So we really appreciate everyone who's contributing to make this show a real thing. Also make sure to check out Jambox.io. They are a royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis on, you guessed it, high-quality cinematic cues. Starting a long time ago, you can use the promo code MMIH, all caps, when signing up to get a 20% discount on your subscription. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Riley Stearns. All right. So Riley, our first question is, could you give us elevator pitch for Duel? (laughs) I'll start with a funny little story. So like the very first time I pitched it to anybody, uh, I guess not the literal first time, but one of the first times was to Jesse Eisenberg. He was asking me about what we were doing next. And I, I mentioned the idea and he goes, well, what's like the elevator pitch for it? And I started talking. And then after I finished, she goes, that's a very tall building. And he said, and it's just, it like basically just insinuating that, that was the longest elevator ride he'd ever taken. And I realized that I didn't know how to talk about it very well. But Duel is about a woman named Sarah who finds out that she's dying. She has herself clones that, that her family won't have to miss her. But when she goes into remission, she is forced to train for a duel to the death that will take place a year to the date with her clone. And that's a shorter elevator ride right there than the initial one that I told took with Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> How many days did you shoot the movie? This was a 28-day shoot. It's the longest shoot that I've had so far, but also the with the caveat that in Finland, where we shot, and I'm sure we'll get into the uh, the reasons behind shooting in, in that country down the line, but we we had to do 10-hour days. That's, that's the the hour count that they go with. And that in, in the beginning was very terrifying because in the United States and in most places where productions take place, it's 12-hour days are pretty standard. And so losing two hours each day, I assumed that that would just put us behind by the end of it. But if anything, it actually ended up being an incredible experience that I may take on to other projects. I, I think the, the big thing was that when you're efficient and you, you have a crew that's motivated, especially when they know that they're going to get out and have time to go see their family and spend like time outside of work and decompress instead of spending 12 hours of their day and then driving home takes an hour sometimes or whatever it is. And they're, they're just stuck in that production stage. So it, it's really nice to let people, including myself, decompress a little bit after work. So 10-hour days ended up being a huge asset to the film. And I feel like if anything, felt like it was more time in, in some ways than 12 hours. Tell us what you can about the budget. Yeah, of course, it's public knowledge. So I can totally talk about our budget. I guess it officially was 4.5 million euros, but about $5 million US. We shot in Finland. So that's how it kind of came out. All of that was through a film fund that uh, XYZ got, or I guess a company that that 
saw value in the way that XYZ had financed projects in the past and the way that they had distributed and sold projects. And so we were the first one out of XYZ's $100 million film fund that they saw into production. Yeah, $5 million was also not a lot when you start to take into consideration shooting where we shot. COVID protocols and procedures, travel, all of that, it, it adds up pretty quickly. But I still think the movie looks more expensive than it even cost. Especially with 28 Days, but that was must have been pretty sweet. How'd you come up with the idea for the film? The initial idea, boringly enough, is, is really just that I wanted to see an actor perform opposite themselves. So I, I started trying to figure out an idea that would work within the, would get me to that sort of image that I was seeing. I came up with the initial idea about the cloning procedure if you knew that you were terminal, but I didn't feel like that was enough of a movie. I, I really thought that it was it was just like the start of something. So I was trying to sit with the idea for a while, asking questions of myself. And one of the questions that came up was, well, what would happen if you hypothetically went into remission? And the immediate answer that I had in my head was, well, of course, you'd have to do your double to the death. And so I knew as soon as that happened, I knew that I had the movie. I knew that that was the reason that it was worth me making it. And I was able to sort of immediately come up with the idea of the ending, the structure of it all, like the, the base base structure. And it felt really right. And I sit with that idea then for another couple of years before I actually start writing it, at least. But it, it was it was that idea where I was like, I, I know what this movie is. Can you go into the timeline a little bit more? Like, when did you first come up with the idea till till now? And what was that entire duration? I came up with the idea. So I wrote The Art of Self-Defense, my previous feature in 2015. Shortly thereafter, and somewhere in 2016, I came up with the idea, like that initial sort of idea for Duel, where I said, this is worth pursuing. I sat on the, the, the idea for a little while. I like to let things percolate a bit before I go to the, the storying out, the carting out of the, the plot. As I was figuring that out, The Art of Self-Defense went into production. So that was around 2017. And right around that time, I was writing maybe a short story version of Duel that I thought might then influence or I might adapt then into a feature. So I, I ended up getting halfway through that. Went and shot The Art of Self-Defense, made them or like edited everything, and then came back to that short story in 2018 and said, I'm not going to finish this, but I am going to use this as a basis for the first part of the film and go ahead and just go straight to structuring out every bit of the, of, of the movie. So 2018, I, I uh, went to cards, felt really good about those. Usually I go from cards to outline, but on this, I just, I knew that it was kind of ready or that I was ready and it was ready. And so I skipped the outline process for the first time and just had a really strong structure in place uh, to, to go off of. And I wrote uh, beginning of August of 2018 to middle of August. And it's like a two-week writing process. And then that's the that's the finished script. So like a lot of people will do a rough draft and then that draft turns into multiple drafts and they're kind of figuring it out as they go through that process. And I feel like my my most efficient process and the most the, the most ideal process for me is to really figure out everything before I go into the script. And obviously you're not figuring out all these minute details. You're 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 letting this story kind of you're filling out little spaces here and there. But for the most part, I know what it is. And so that I can have that that feeling of being able to go down those paths in the script writing process and not feel like I'm going to venture down some weird path that's going to take me off the beaten route. And then I'm going to end up in a bad space. And then I'm gonna, I know I'm going to have to go to rewrite or whatever. So for this, it's always been, or from my process, it's always been be very deliberate about what you want to do before you go to the page. And then there you can, you can have fun with some things and find some stuff that you weren't expecting 
but then you're not having to go through a million drafts afterwards. Compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was it to make this one? I mean, okay, so the way that I describe it, especially because we shot in Finland and during COVID, is that uh, there were some days that were the hardest days of production I've ever had, particularly our second day of shooting. I was a it was the first day that Karen was going to be opposite herself. So we were using motion control rigs and using them in a way that maybe they weren't designed for initially too. So there was some, there were some technological glitches. And then also just the, the way that you shoot a scene where one person has to like match the pace of somebody else who was their stand in all of that. I, I learned a lot that very first day and, and going forward, it made us a stronger production because we, we knew where we were going and we knew how to proceed through those challenging moments with the motion control. But yeah, as an overall, I would say that Duel is probably the like most seamless, easiest shoot that I've had. But again, there were there were challenges to say the least. When you talk about finding your pitch, like turning it from a very tall building to, I guess, a, a smaller building, is is the process of refining the pitch similar to how specific you are about your screenwriting process? Like, I was just curious if you had like a blueprint for the way you pitch projects, the way you seem to have a very clear blueprint for writing scripts. The simple answer is that I don't, I've never actually pitched anything. It's always been people read a script and then I talk to them afterwards. So I feel like that's not a pitch in the sense that most people will go through and say, so we fade in and right. And then like they go through that whole <laughs> spiel and they talk about why it's important and like why it needs to be made. And here's this document and all this stuff. And my process is tended to be even since faults, people can read the, the material. Now they can go back and watch other movies that I've made and say, okay, this worked or this isn't my kind of thing and, and, and know pretty certainly where, which direction it's going to go. And then we just have a conversation about it and what our expectations are. And with dual, I met with a lot of production companies who either really enjoyed the script, but wanted some drastic changes, particularly to the third act, or I had meetings with people who just didn't get it. And that was fine. For me, I would rather make something with people who are fully on board than people who are going to give me more money, like some production companies were at, like saying that they would do. But me saying, I'd rather have the smaller budget, but work people who fully understand and get where the project's going. I met with XYZ, at, had a, a lunch with Panos Cosmatos in Austin in 2019, when the Art of Self-Defense was at South by Southwest. And he, he invited me to this lunch that Nate Blotton of XYZ Films was going to also be at. They were going to meet up. And kind of a kill two birds with one stone, I imagine, sort of situation with Panos, where he got to hang out with Nate and me. And then by the end of that meeting, Nate was like, give us the script. We want to read this. This sounds amazing. And I had a meeting with the rest of the production people at XYZ back in LA, like a week later, and they were on board. And at the end of that meeting, I said, I want to do this. Like, this is you guys are the right people. I love your track record. And I love the way in which you're saying that I'm going to have a creative control over the end product. And even more so than that, they ended up giving me my first final cut. This is the first time that I've had the final, final cut on. Obviously, listen to notes that people have, but they told me, take them or leave them. And they were true to their word. This is definitely my movie in the sense that I had final say over it, but it's a collaborative process. And I, I feel like throughout that process, XYZ was always there and had my back. So let's talk about that meeting, you know, at South by Southwest, like that lunch meeting. Like you, you, you talk about how you don't really pitch, you don't like do that song and dance that a lot of people do. So 
so how did you get them excited about the movie without them reading the script? Like, what was that conversation like? It's hard to remember exactly what happened, but I assume it was they were they had probably seen faults or Nate had probably seen faults. And then he was excited about it, the art of self-defense. And Panos had probably read Duel at that point. He might have been one of the people who I sent it to for thoughts. I, I think it would have just been a natural thing that came up in conversation about what you're doing next. Then I probably would have sent them the script via my manager or agent, and they would have read it that way. But it was a very organic experience. That was, I think, what I liked so much about it, as opposed to it feeling very businessy. It wasn't like like have your agent send it to me and like do the, like it just happened to be a hey yeah, I'll just have like a boss Ben to send it over, and they were really cool about it, and it just didn't feel it didn't feel official in a way that was nice. Uh, and then our meeting that we had similarly it was very casual. But their enthusiasm was palpable and and you just kind of, you can feel it. It's a weird thing where you can't really put your finger on what it is, but you know it when you feel it. And, and that definitely happened with them. I'm going to press on this even more because pitching is something we talk about a lot. By the way, Ulrich and I are both filmmakers and coincidentally, we both made films where there are doubles. So this is like a very, <laughs> very weird conversation well, now that I kind I'm, of put I'm, it together. I feel like a, an honorary member then. Yeah, yeah you are. <laughs> but in terms of being a working filmmaker, I mean, you certainly of are of a certain caliber and tier. This is not to presume that you are not, but how have you, how have you survived without having to do the song and dance is what I'm trying to figure out. Is it that you've had such success with your other films where you're really in a position of power and you can have that kind of confidence going into meetings? Or is it a decision that you made where you're just not going to turn on that switch and, and kind of be that dancing monkey or whatever? It feels so normal to me that I haven't had to, that I forget sometimes that that's not the norm. I was talking with a filmmaker friend in uh, Chicago the other day. And she was just saying, like, it's insane. Like, you had, like, she was talking to myself and Joe Swanberg about how we just are like, you don't get, you just decide this and it, that people take it as fate at face value. But it really has been, I've been very lucky that I haven't had to do these things. It's not that I wouldn't pitch something if I had to, but I think I'm in a very fortunate position where my stuff tends to be pretty specific and the people who it doesn't work with, like who don't want to make that kind of stuff can very easily just say no. And like, that's fine. And that's, I would, I would rather they do their own thing and myself do my own thing. The people who do want to make projects like The Art of Self-Defense, which was literally only one company wanted to make that in queue, they want to make it despite the... like. I, they don't need me to show that I'm good at talking about the movie. They need me to go and make a good movie. And so the companies that want to work with me, that have worked with me, it hasn't been about my ability to talk about a project in the room. It's always been about my ability to like first deliver a script that they like and then talk about how I'm going to make it potentially. And then now it really just comes back to being able to look at the other films and say, well, we trust him because of this track record. And it's very, I've been, I was very lucky with faults that uh, Snood Entertainment said yes to that one because I was a first time feature filmmaker. And the tone is very specific. I don't think they realized that it was as humorous as I always intended it to be. So that was probably a little bit of a surprise to them, even though I felt like it read like that on the page, but they always trusted it. 
And then that tightrope walk of tone helped me get Derek's self-defense made, which would never have gotten made as a first feature. Like the fact that I had a pretty well-received first feature in place that was similarly toned, just not as extreme. And people still read The Art of Self-Defense and said, no, there's no way that this is going to be a good movie, or I don't get it, or I don't know what you're trying to achieve, or this is going to be too challenging tonally. They were able to just like say that, but then Andrew Korshak at NQ said, I read this and I saw your last movie and I want to make this. So I, I, I don't know how I've been able to do it. And it's not like a conscious, like, fuck you, I'm not going to pitch type of thing. It just has worked out that people who want to work with me have been able to say, I trust the process, I trust the material, and I trust the track record. You're also writing these on spec too, right? So like you're usually walking into a situation where you already have a script ready to go. Is that how you prefer to work? Or would you be willing to like, you know, like just get hired to to write an idea that you have and do it that way? Or do you feel like more confident, like, oh no, I want to do my process. Once I'm happy, then I can share it with somebody. That's a great question. So with with faults, I wrote that on spec because at that point I had a manager but not an agent. And I'm sorry, no, I wrote I wrote faults before manager too. So I completely wrote that on spec after Sundance. And Snoop attached themselves before I even had a manager as well. And after that, I assumed that the next time around we would try to find a production company who wanted to work with me. And like you said, I would I would maybe go in and, and like pitch the idea. We're going back to pitches, pitch the idea for the art of self-defense, and then find the company that wanted to work with me, maybe attach an actor and then write the movie. And but they would they would pay me ahead of time and then I would write it. But my manager really and agents subsequently really recommended that I write that one on spec. And I'm so glad that they did because now that's kind of the process that I like the most. And I feel like gives me the most creative control. If I were to sell an idea and then go and write it, I think that even with a company like XYZ that I trust and they get where I'm coming from, there's always that chance that the idea that you deliver is not the idea that they wanted or thought that they would get. And if you can go in and, and like, I can, I, I live within my means. I, I am doing well enough that I don't have to stress about like, I need this money right now. I need this upfront. If I can go ahead and do the work on my end for free and then trust that at some point down the line, I will see a return on that. That's the way that I would rather go because I get that. I get the, the freedom of knowing, or I guess the, the comfort of knowing that whatever company buys this gets exactly what they're getting. And I'm not going to make any changes unless we all agree on those changes. But if you're going to enter into this relationship of working together, we're all on the same page. This is the material we're doing. As opposed to going in, selling an idea, writing it, and then coming back to them and then being like, we can't make this unless you do this, this, and this. And then you can't take that idea anywhere else because they own it. I, I feel like going forward on my projects that are like written and directed by me, that's the, the best way for me to go about it. And then I would like to maybe at some point, if I adapt something or whatever, I could see myself going in and saying, okay, I'll do the pre sort of sale and do this for you guys. But I, I, I think that that's a, a separate sort of process. Yeah. If you feel comfortable, I'm going to ask a somewhat personal question in that there's a little bit of a, a gap in between fault and art of self-defense compared to the trajectory before and the trajectory afterwards. And you've kind of alluded to it already, right? Like you probably were meeting a bunch of people who may not have gotten the project as well mm-hmm. as your eventual partners did. How do you sustain a lifestyle during that gap of work? If uh, you feel comfortable yeah. answering Yeah, of that. course. No, I'm, I'm super open. I There are two things. So the initial thing about why there is a gap, the gap is because 
from faults uh, or after faults and when it was playing film festivals, I assumed I would never get to make another movie again. And so I, <laughs> I just wanted to travel with the movie and go to festivals and get that experience. And then once that was done, I was left there sitting going, shit, I should have been working on something because now I don't have anything. And so I was stressing to come up with an idea. I thought up an idea and sort of was like about voyeurism that I could not break. I sat with it for like a year before I realized that it wasn't working. And I had started doing jujitsu a couple of years prior and started, I, I had my I call with my agent manager and they suggested I just try something in that world. And, and so that led to the art of self-defense. And I wrote it, I felt really good about it, but it also was very slow going in the beginning and nobody was interested and faults didn't do that well. I think it's going to always be one of those things that people go back to who like my stuff now. But at the time, it, it wasn't a big movie by any stretch and not a lot of people saw it. So it was very hard to get the excitement behind the art of self-defense. And then once NQ came on, which was probably, I want to say 20, because I guess Faults came out in 2015 or 2014. And I wrote The Art of Self-Defense in 2015. I guess it wasn't that long of a gap, but it feels like it. And especially because Bleecker Street also, in their releasing of the movie, we sat on it a full year before we played South by Southwest. It was fully done for almost an entire year. And then immediately after that, it came out into theaters. So it, it felt, I think it feels longer than it actually was, but it still, like you said, there's a gap there. At the time I was married. So my ex-wife is an actor. She did fairly well. And so I was able to kind of brave that sort of gap there and, and, and make that work. That's not an option necessarily for everybody, obviously. So I was, I was fortunate in that regard, but it, it's something too that going forward, like I can't, like I, I can sit for limited amounts of time and, and kind of give myself a little bit of a moment. Yeah, I'm definitely moving a little bit faster than I maybe would have. And I guess that's just like by the nature of feeling that pressure that you put on yourself. And then also just making sure that you you don't stay away for too long and then people forget about your stuff and, and all of that. You mentioned your manager and agent a couple of times. Um, when did that come into play? Was that like after the first feature was done? Before the first feature? Second feature? Like what time did they join join you and become you know part of your team? I made a short called The Cub that played Sundance in 2013. And at the festival, at the I was on my way to the Shorts Awards. I was sitting at a bus stop and I passed out DVDs of the short to anybody who wanted them. I came with like 500 DVDs of the short, <laughs> passed them out after screenings. And Michael Mohan, the director friend of mine, told me that he did that with his short years before. And so I was like, I'm going to do the same thing. And it was really great. I think it was a nice little calling card. And I, I, got a, I had a lot of people... Uh, I've had people send me photos of their DVDs still, which I'm like, oh, that's cool. They held on to it. But I passed out a DVD to a guy with a British accent at a bus stop on the way to the Shorts Awards at Sundance. And then a month later, I get an email from this guy saying, hey, you probably won't remember me, but I, was, I met you at a bus stop and you gave me a DVD and I'm sorry it took so long to watch, but I'm actually a manager and this is really great. And I really would love to come talk to you about what you're doing next. In the meantime, between that bus stop and that email, I had a meeting with Keith and Jess Calder where I showed them the script that I wrote for Faults and they said that they were fully on board. And so I went into this meeting with Ben Rowe, who's now at Grandview Management Company and said like, I'm not going to talk about the feature. I just want to hear like what he thinks about me as a director and, and the short and all this stuff and see if he's cool. Because I'd had a lot of meetings with managers who weren't that cool, or at least weren't my speed. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound like people sucked, but some, some people did suck. But most people just weren't for me. And 
just had a really great meeting with him and realized that he was the right type of person. At the end of it, I basically just said, also, I have this script. It looks like a production company is interested in making it. He read it that night and then called me the next day and said, if you want to work together, I would love to work with you. And so I've been with Ben ever since 2013 and just can't imagine not having him as one of the people on my team. And then I waited on purpose to talk to agencies until after South by Southwest because the script got passed around that year that in 2013 as like a spec that even though we were making it, there was one of those things like a sample where everybody in town was reading it and ended up on the blacklist that year, which is still so funny to me because we made the movie that year too. So we're on this, the blacklist for best unproduced scripts, but we went off and made it in secrecy and didn't even know that we were being considered for it. So we were in the top 10 that year, which was really funny, but also cool. And I just didn't want to be seen as a writer for hire. That wasn't where I saw myself as. I wanted to be a director. So any agency I met with when I was just going around with the script would have only seen me as a writer. And I didn't really feel like that was the path that I wanted to go down. So Ben and I talked about it and we decided to wait until after I made after the movie was out, then go out to agencies and meet with some people. And he would pair me up with people he thought would be like-minded and uh, met with uh, several places or several companies. And I had a uh, meeting with CAA where I was like, there's no way I'm going to go with CAA. They're like the biggest one. I don't want to be this small fish in this huge sea or whatever. And had a dinner with David Koppel and John Garvey at, at that agency. And at, by the end of it, it was just like, they're kind of perfect and they really get it. And uh, it's not about the agency. It's about the people. And I've stuck with that. Like I, David has no longer or has since left CAA, but John Garvey's still there. And I've got this other guy on my film side, Robert Lee, who's who's like a young agent there. But they kind of give me my space to do my thing. I don't feel like I, I don't need a handhold sort of relationship with my agents and manager like some people do, where they need to talk to them like once a week or, or more. It's more just if anything ever comes up, they know I'll come to them and, and vice versa. And yeah, I, I, I'm glad that I went about it that way because I feel like I ended up at the right, with the right companies. I'm just curious about like hunger and achievement and tears. I think a lot of us, I, I don't know, for me on the outside, I'm looking at your career and I'm like, okay, you hit like, okay, you did the Sundance tier, you got the representation tier, your feature, your South by, you know, big names. I'm seeing it grow, 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 grow. Do you see it as like an upward trajectory or is it kind of all horizontal? Like, how do you see it being in the middle of it? I don't know where it's going to happen, but there's there's no way that you can always get bigger. Um, I, I think that there are certain directors like a Christopher Nolan that can do that, where you just get another hundred million dollars added to your budget every time, and it's just going to be the norm. But and I'm obviously I'm being hyperbolic there, but <laughs> I do know that I I'm I'm looking at a trajectory that is on an upward slope. I want to make things that are bigger each time. I want bigger audiences. Uh, I want more responsibility. But I've always been conscious of not getting too big too fast because I feel like that's where you start to lose control. And specifically with budget, I I, I was talking earlier about how I met at several companies that uh, two in particular that said that they would want to make it, but only if they could make it for ten million dollars. And I think it's because it puts more it puts more in the game for them, more skin in the game. And they can get more people involved, and potentially if it's a hit, it can make even more money. But when I heard that, I was just like, that's not what the movie needs, and I. I also feel like as my third feature, especially the two movies before it that weren't necessarily huge successes, like not failures, but not huge successes, I knew that it would put me in a position of potentially losing creative control, like there would be too many cooks in the kitchen. 
And I'm glad that I went about it that way because I feel like five million again was like the exact amount that the movie needed, and anything more would have been loss on my end in terms of my say in things or potential moments uh, where pe- people could hold something over me. And so now, if I went mid ten million dollar movie as number four, I actually feel like I could continue to keep my sort of stake in it. But I do think that there's a threshold where you you're eventually going to get to. I'm not. I'm not a Tarantino. I'm never going to have like that kind of creative control at the budget level that he has. But I would really like to try to keep as much of that going forward as possible while still getting bigger and in scope. I, I look at people like Ryan Johnson, who obviously has made some very big movies recently, but then has gone back and made some smaller stuff. But he always, I love that he went from Brick to Brothers Bloom, which even though Brothers Bloom was $20 million, it's still very much a him movie and it feels very small too. You've got Looper and just all of that kind of tracks. I feel like there's a slope to it that I really liked. And Ty West had a similar sort of thing, which I also enjoyed that sort of slow build. And now with X, I feel like he's back on that that trajectory again. I want to make sure that I don't get too big too fast, but I definitely would like to make bigger things in the future. I am dying to ask a process question. I know that we're kind of winding down, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Yeah. So in the beginning of the talk, you talked about flashcards and using cards to write your script. How, how do you use cards? And like, like, do you really only have like one or two drafts of the script? Like, it, like what is the, the final draft number? Is it really... It's V3? One. <laughs> it's one. Yeah. Every one. single... Uh, and some people will some people will hear that and go, makes sense. Like what I just saw on the screen, that makes sense. That's first draft. But for me, it's like, that's my <laughs> And I'm okay with the people knowing that I'm a first draft guy. Like, obviously you make tweaks as you're going through production and, and everything, but like tweaks are in lines changing slightly or knowing that this location isn't going to be there. So you change it to what the location that you found actually is and stuff. So it's not, it's not changing anything about the script other than minute details. The way that I card is how I learned to do it on television. When I, I went through the whole, I was an assistant, then I'm sorry, a PA and then an assistant, then showrunner's assistant, then I was a staff writer. And all the rooms that worked really well that I was on, when they were really moving, it would be when they would card out their, their stories in a specific way. Specifically, when I was on Tower Prep for Cartoon Network, it was like their live action experiment. And Glenn Morgan was the showrunner. He brought on his brother, Darren Morgan. And they both come from X-Files and they've written some of the best X-Files episodes. And they're just like incredible writers and they happen to be super talented brothers and everything. He and Darren brought their style of carding from that show. And the way that it works is that any every scene is on one card. And if you double space your... your or I guess you use two lines for your, your writing. Like I can... If I had it downstairs, I can show an example. But they use just a regular index card and you write in big letters and very cleanly and, and very neatly. If you can explain on one card what that scene is about, you can understand a scene. And I really found that valuable because sometimes we think we put too much and then it's hard to kind of just quickly look at it and say what that scene's about because there's too much there. If you can start to think about what the scene's actually about, distill it to one or two sentences and fit it on one card. And again, big letters, very neatly written. I feel like it trains you to... I don't know. There's several things about it that I really like. It trains you to think about the scene deep in a deeper way because you have to distill it to one card. But then it also is really easy for you to look at thou, that card and a big stack of cards out on a table or on a wall and say, I know exactly what that scene is instead of going, okay, let me read this scene and go through it. And you're like, okay, all that stuff happens. Instead, you're just like, I, I can read it super easy. It's going to go here now. 
And I try to write the big beats out on cards first, then I lay them out in a pseudo order. And then I go through and I say, like, pretty simply, you just say, okay, what goes in between this? Well, this scene is probably here. And you go, oh, okay, well, how do I connect those? We'll definitely need this. And so you start adding and, and putting that all together. And before you know it, you can read the whole movie just via cards. There are people who work really well with whiteboards in sort of a similar way, but I find the cards are really valuable because it's very easy just to rearrange it if you need to. And then if something isn't working, you can take it out. If something needs to go in, you can put it in. And then what's also nice is that if you ever go and decide to write in San Diego, like I did, which is a short drive away from LA, you just take all those cards, you put them in a stack. And then when you get to San Diego, you put them, take them out of the stack and put them back out and you've got everything there. Instead of having this gigantic whiteboard or having to photograph it. And then again, you're dealing with that thing where now you don't have the ability to rearrange things while you're writing. So I find the cards are the most valuable approach for myself. All right. We're going to jump into our final questions. First question is, what's the first film you ever made? How do you feel about it now? I don't talk about this very often, but I, I made a short that I didn't finish with my, my ex-wife and a writer named Andrew Chambliss, who's now the showrunner of the, uh, ta- or the, the Fear of the Walking Dead. He and I co-directed and co-wrote it. It's called Stop Eject. The audio was atrocious and I ended up throwing it all away because of the audio. But it was like this, I was definitely trying to rip off like a Michelle Gondry type of thing where you've got people inside of other people's working inside of people's brains and there's a memory that gets lost and they're trying to find this memory. And it had good ideas, but it's it's definitely it was it was biting off more than it could chew. And I'm glad that it has no it doesn't I don't even think the trailer that I made for it exists online anymore, which is probably for the best. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? And I, this, this is a simple one. And it's one that I tend to give to other people. So it's not necessarily one that I remember hearing, but I think it's best if you're trying to break in in any way, whether it's being a writer or a director or both, that starting with short films is the best path that you can take. I mean, you're, you learn so much as you do it. And then you also have something at the end of it that you can show somebody who maybe if like, if you're a writer and you've never had anything made before, but you have a short that worked really well and somebody can watch the short that's going to take them 10 minutes of their life first and then go, this is really good. If that person wrote this other thing, which is 110 pages, I think it's worth now reading that 110 pages as opposed to just a stack of paper or a PDF. And they have no idea what's in that. And it feel like I feel like it's less daunting for people. And similarly, as a director, you can you can show that you are capable of achieving a vision and you do it in a way that's not going to risk people's millions of dollars out the gate. So short films are, are, are my recommendation for most people. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received or heard? I think a lot. Of, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is a lot of people try to say that directing is hard. And I think if you know what you want to make and if you plan and you're efficient and you trust the process and, and can communicate with other people, directing is actually very easy. It's the balance of tone that's hard. It's all of that. But the actual process of it is no different from any other part of filmmaking. I think that people, especially people who are really good at directing, a lot of times tend to act like they are doing something that nobody else can do. And, and so I would, I, I would say anybody who's discouraged by the technology of it, maybe they don't understand lenses or they don't understand camera moves or anything like that, work with a really talented cinematographer who can kind of bridge that gap for you. But you can, it's all about story at the end of the day. So just if you're, if you want to make a, something, if you want to tell a story, don't be afraid of directing. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Right now, it's to come up with an idea for feature number four. I'm not trying to think too far ahead in the future. I, I want to just keep making things. And again, I've been very lucky that I've made the things that I've made so far and that they've been very much me. I just want to keep doing that. And I'm 
under no delusion that it's a hard business to stay in and stay relevant in. And also, I don't know where the market's going and where theatrical's going and if it's going to all eventually just turn into VOD and, and streaming and if everything's eventually going to get lost and it's all going to change. But for now, I, I just want to keep making things the, the way that we're doing it. If you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Depending on when in time, I wish I would have found the desire to direct earlier. When I started finding movies, I, I, I realized that I could be a writer and it was because I didn't think I was capable of directing. I think my, almost giving myself the advice I just said a moment ago that I thought that I just wouldn't make a good director because I wasn't necessarily a cinephile. And I found movies a lot later than other people. And I didn't totally understand the camera stuff and everything, but I realized, and I also knew that kind of coming from a background of playing bass where you're in the background and you're laying the rhythm of it all and you're, you're not the front man or whatever. I kind of had that sort of feeling going into films where I'd be like, I could tell the story and then somebody else can actually execute it and be the front man. And I wish I would have gone down the path of directing a little sooner rather than telling myself I could only write. The last question, is making movies hard? Yes and no. It's the most fun thing that you can do when it's working. It, it just it feels like it's the easiest thing in the world. It, when, you, when you work with talented crew who are way better at their jobs than you ever would be at your job at that job and you get to kind of steer a ship and you and that ship is sailing perfectly it's the best feeling but when it's hard it's one of the hardest things i feel like every shoot the day before i just kind of want to run away and then they won't they wouldn't have wasted their their money on me and what if i fail and you have the imposter syndrome every single time and i, I think i'm getting better at reminding myself that that's just what it is it's imposter syndrome it's not it's not real yeah i mean on on day 2 when we were behind and i felt like everything was falling apart and it was my fault and like all this stuff then the next day you go it actually wasn't your fault and like it, it it's just kind of the way that it worked out and now you're learning from that those days are are super super hard but I would rather be doing this than anything else. And I'm glad that I get to to do this for a living. Please tell people, our audience, how they could support you, how they can see your film. Duel ends up in theaters on Friday, April 15th. So it's coming up in a couple of days, which is crazy. We'll be at most AMC theaters, or say, I guess in most cities via an AMC theater. A lot of local theaters are going to be picking us up, like not local, independent theaters. And the Draft House is, is really behind us as well. So you can, if you have a Draft House in your town, more than likely it'll be playing dual. We'll be in theaters for about a month. And normally I would only want to talk about that. But I know that the reality of it all is, especially post-COVID, and, and a lot of people still aren't ready to go back to theaters. The VOD option is, is more what they're looking for. And so May 20th will also be on AMC Plus and available for rent on iTunes and all of that. So uh, while I would prefer people go see it with some other people, especially because it's a comedy at the, at the end of the day, even though it's pretty dark and bleak, it's fun to watch things that make people laugh with other people. And if you can do that, I strongly recommend it. But if you, for whatever reason, need to watch it at home, hopefully you enjoy it and the and, and turn off motion smoothing on your TV when you watch it. Too. Thank you for being on the show. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. This was really fun. Alric, what do you remember about our conversation with Riley that we had five minutes ago? What do you remember? Like, what what is salient in your mind? One draft. <laughs> One draft is salient in my mind. It's so crazy. I mean, because, you know, and, and like he admitted that there are changes that, like, you know, there are, you know, 
revisions. So he he doesn't like he's just on the white version the whole time he shoots. He goes up to blue and red and goldenrod, whatever the colors are. We went to, we went up to, we went up to goldenrod on my movie. Oh, we went up to like double goldenrod. Don't you worry, or double oh, double salmon, whatever's Ooh. farther. <laughs> double salmon, love it. Yeah, but no, I just thought that was fascinating. And like you know, I've I've heard lots of different descriptions of how people write with cards but i i just i've tried it before i don't like it very much um my friends have done it i've seen people do it other guests have talked about it but it was just really fascinating to hear about you know riley's card process and how it worked for him and you know how it works for him and also the fact that he prefer to write on spec rather than getting paid to write his his concept out by a production company I thought that was very fascinating and like also kind of reassuring in a way. He like really, when you talk about filmmakers who have a vision and know what they want, like that's this guy and it is amazing. Like I'm a pretty, I'm in awe of him. I also remember the questions that people most get, they get most sheepish about. He was like, like proud and excited and honest in his answers. So like he told us the budget straight out of his film, which I always love to hear. And then he talked very openly about how, you know, he had the support of his spouse and didn't have to worry about working for a few years. It's just nice to hear people say those things out loud. Yeah, totally. Be very open and honest and not like, not try to like, you know, redirect the question to something else, you know? Yeah. All right. So this week we have a a new article to talk about. It's about method acting and it's from Samantha Burgesson from IndieWire. And it's all about how Will Poulter has recently slammed method acting saying that it shouldn't be an excuse for bad behavior. And there's a few other notable actors who chimed in with quotes on this, including Jake Gyllenhaal and Mads Mikkelsen. But Liz, I mean, like, what do you think about all of this? Like, what do you think about method acting? Have you ever worked with an actor who is a method a- acting actor? Or what's your, your opinion? I think it would be very difficult on that person's heart and head and, and lifestyle to be a method actor, especially if you're playing like an atrocious individual. So I'm pretty against it. Like, I think we need to have boundaries between our work and our art. <laughs> but I, I did want to call Jake Gyllenhaal out for a second because he kind of makes fun of himself as a former method actor, especially on Nightcrawler. But I know someone fairly well who worked on Nightcrawler with him. And Jake Gyllenhaal was a total asshole to him. And... Mm really abided by method techniques that were abusive and weird on that film. So, like, I just think it's funny, like, he could make these jokes about how he, you know, in the article, they quote him as, like, all these lofty goals about trying to be a method actor and losing weight and, you know, had these intentions of really getting into the role, but instead, he couldn't really go full, you know, to the hilt. But I I think he did. <laughs> like, I think he's just trying <laughs> to be blasé about it now, because it's funny to do it. And because Brian Cox kind of made fun of it with regard to succession, and because filmmakers are because actors are kind of mocking that kind of seriousness in terms of performance like it's in it's in vogue to do that right now but i think that there's a lot of history of bad behavior with these hollywood stars anyway is what i i just don't want to say he doesn't get away scot-free with me jake gyllenhaal right well yeah i guess i i don't know the whole part of like trying to lose weight and then gaining weight i thought that was funny but i guess he left out the part where he was still a character the whole time (laughs) Anyways, you know, people redirect their own truth the way that they like to. That's fine. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it's important to, to still be a person when you're making a movie because I feel like it is really hard. It's really like a, a very tough time 
you know, to go through as, as a person, as an artist, uh, especially if you are, you know, one of the creative forces behind the project. I think it can be very, it's very personal. And that includes actors, of course. So I think it'd probably be helpful to, to not do that, you know, although I know that like, you know, actors do get into the zone and like, you know, you know, Ed didn't, wasn't a method at all, you know, in making the alternate. But like he did get very focused and he had really intense energy, especially when we were like getting around, like getting close to shooting the scene, you know, mm. like we would do the, the blocking rehearsal. He kind of go away, be by himself. Then he would like talk and interact and be a normal person. But then like as we got up to shooting it, like you could totally see that he was like getting into the zone, you know, and it was like that was just his process. And he was very heated at times. But I was also very heated, too. But I don't know. I feel like everyone has a different process. But yeah, I don't think that people should be like, I'm in character, so I'm going to piss on you or <laughs> I don't know, whatever terrible things people do. I think that is that is ridiculous. Well, yeah, the, I, there's this article that came out in the past week about just how horrible Jared Leto is. And I'm on board for that kind of trolling, I think, because they were talking about how he who's like he sent <laughs> he sent Margot Robbie like a pet rat as a gift, like a token of his love. Like, he just did a bunch of crap on the set of Suicide Squad. Or you're just like, oh, you're just like, you're just making trouble because you think it's funny. Like, this has nothing to do with a process. This is an excuse for you to get some attention. And I don't know. That's absurd. You know, and he was claiming that he was being the Joker. Yes. And that he was like doing things like a Joker. But then he was just doing weird, just stupid doing weird shit. Stuff. Just like, you're not the Joker. Like, you could just whatever. Ask the writer what the Joker would do and then do that. Anyway. Well, the Joker would kill the rat and then kill the person who gave the rat to. So I don't think that we really want to be thinking about, you know, what the Joker would do. And plus, that's so stupid because famously, Heath Ledger was method doing the Joker, apparently. And then he fucking died. So, like, I don't know. Maybe that's not, like, a good sign of what we should be doing as artists, you know? And I was just looking back in the interview with Riley that we had today. You know, he talked about shooting the film in, in Finland and how what a break 10 hour days were and how funny that is. It's like they're 10 hour days. Like he was talking about, oh, he got a chance. Crew members got a chance to see their family. But how Riley was like, oh, you know, doing 10 hour days has like long term ramifications in terms of giving people break and giving people time to decompress. And it's like 10 hour days is still a really long time. So like, let's work on boundaries between work and play so that we don't think 10 hour days is like a massive relaxation schedule, like relaxing schedule for our film, for our production schedules. Like our our frame of mind is completely off in this industry. Yeah, I agree. But I, I like the 10 hour day thing that, that Riley said. I thought it was very interesting. And no, we should all have at least 10 hour days, but it should be eight hour days. Like we should go less <laughs> is what I'm saying. Then we just have to have infinite budgets, Liz, if we can all do eight hour days. Um a few weeks ago, listener and new patron of the show, Carl Richter. Thank you, Carl Richter. Happy birthday, Carl Richter. Wrote us a little note, which we thought was worth sharing. So he shared a few responses to things we talked about on the show recently. One, he says, I'm with Ulrich. Licorice Pizza was nowhere near an Oscar nom. It feels stupid that it was, like in an embarrassing way. I love PTA. Boogie Nights was one of my first special edition DVDs I bought. But Licorice Pizza is a laugh, really. See, BB Agreed. agrees with me that it's a great movie and that we shouldn't really give him too much credence. What's so great about it? I mean, I, I, I wish someone story. could explain to me. Great performances. I don't know. Charming, clever. 
Okay, he goes okay. on to say, if anything, it's just an extension of the PTA universe. I'm going to, I'm going to guess that he was hinting that Gary's actually the mattress man from Punch Drunk Love. The timeline works. That is very interesting, Carl. That is. It's very meta. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Carl goes on to say, Power of the Dog was weak and deserved no noms other than maybe score. From script, read the script, if not because it was Jane Campion, it would never have been made. To screen, it was weak. I love BC, but he was a caricature. I'm going to, I'm waiting for BB to make another noise so that we can. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and disagree Thank with that Thank you. Statement. Disagree. Three disagreements. I really liked Power of the Dog a lot. And I think that what he should say is not the score, but the sound design was incredible in that movie. It was almost like a character. It was so powerful, uh, the way that they did the sound in that movie. But I actually liked the script. I thought the script was good. I like Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch. I actually said the exact opposite. <laughs> I said without Benedict Cumberbatch, this movie is like, you know, just another Western that we've seen before. But the way that he was so weird and so different in the way he played that character and so bizarre, it, it made it compelling. And I felt like, like, I have met weirdos who are kind of weird like that guy. Like, I've met these kind of super passive aggressive weirdos who are just like in their own shit and they can't like get out of their own head and it's like and then just treat people like dog shit you know like i've seen that happen so like i kind of i didn't necessarily relate to the character like like i know like i am this person but like i could i was like yeah i've seen weirdos before and this is one fucking weirdo so i don't know i liked it and i I like the ending you know i love the way that she like she gave us enough information of like what was happening that if we were smarter or if I was smarter, I could have guessed what was happening and, and, and Beth kind of did. But it, it was like, the, it was the way I like movies. But I, but I didn't really feel like, it was like more like a genre movie and less like a uh, a typical Oscar movie. BB, I love you. BB and I again are in agreement in that we agree with you, Alric. We really like Power of the Dog. We disagree with Carl, but we appreciate and give him the space to air his grievances. Carl also says that it was time to support you. I enjoy what you do and know what it takes to make anything of value. Now, will you read my script? JK, that's not how this works. He continues with, thanks for a great podcast. Love the insights. Love the very valuable interviews. Would love to get a coffee with either of you in the near future. I'll rec when you're in town or I'm in SF, which is a, you know, he goes on. So, um, (laughs) Carl. He did say later that he wrote this while traveling. Yeah. And so like the typos and like the little abrupt ending, that's where that comes from. Carl, we really appreciate you. We appreciate your letter. And thank you for supporting the show and being part of our family. And I'll I'll toss this over to Ulrich for the end of the show. So you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which we would love. And finally, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. You can check out the International Screenwriters Association, one of our partners. They're called the ISA for short. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks so much to Riley Stearns for coming on the show and to Camelia DB from Katrina Juan PR for, you know, setting this whole thing up. And thanks to our amazing producer, Eric Toms, for just being amazing. And to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing all the wonderful editing. Thanks to all y'all for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. BB, you want to take us out? Go ahead, BB. ESA. Boo boo. She's just gonna smile. Yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> oh, so cute. Hello. 
is this too distracting to have BB here? We're almost done. Uh, we're almost done. Though yeah, we're I almost can, done. we can hear every single noise that comes out of her, which is okay with me. I'm just acknowledging it. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, well, you know, I'll. Uh, yeah, we'll just <laughs> we'll just get through this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>